0: and just – I feel like I should go to the Sizzler now. I don't um, think we I don't, have I don't, I don't, any. I don't think there here. is. I was going to say I don't think I have one either. I've always just heard about <laughs>
1: it in pop culture, never actually went to it. Um, granted, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I guess any buffet-style restaurant will do.
0: Um, I'm not a big buffet fan. I think buffets are kind of disgusting.
1: It's You um, know what it is? It's just, when I go out just, or when I like to eat, I don't like to move. So the idea of having to get up to get food and bring it to myself, I I, might as well stay home. Kind of,
0: you know. I was gonna say it kind of sounds like that's just what you like to do in general, right? You don't want like you watch movies, you just don't want to move. That's true. That's another thing. uh, You you like to sleep, don't you? (laughs) Well, not just don't like to move,
1: but you know, sometimes (laughs) you never know if the movie's gonna keep you awake or not. If you're up late or whatnot, Um,
0: you're always up late. That
1: is true. It is. Yeah. it's it's both a gift and a curse i love the, I love yeah, the silence I, I love the uh the isolation of it but uh you end up sleeping half your day away to the point where yeah in, I mean, in the winter you go to bed and it's dark and you wake up and it's dark depending on the time change and where you live
0: yeah it, it can become kind of depressing when you don't see the daylight at all right um i used to be like that too um now i have a day job so i don't That's not my world anymore but uh you used to be a, used to you're be.
1: a man of responsibilities
0: ah god just don't say stuff <laughs> like that um but yeah uh here we are again with another episode of the cinema discovery project uh i am one of your hosts here uh steven billings and with me once again is my cohort uh andrew cabral how you doing man
1: i'm doing good back here once again it feels like we were just here Doing this very recently. Well, the thing is...
0: Yeah, the, the it's that last episode the rocky episode I feel like it lasted so long that we actually just finished yeah, I think doing just that episode finished. I think each- we just finished that humongous episode and now we just after it took like a break for like five minutes and now we're doing this episode um, which is gonna be kind of a, a little bit of a different episode than, than what we've done this is getting even more specific I think and and we will say off the bat that uh, we're not experts definitely in this field but we're gonna do our best to give you a little some tidbits and give you some of our personal taste in the world of scores um you know or soundtracks however you like to uh call this uh but we we we, you know figured you know we'd do something a little different and talk about some of our favorite uh composers some of our favorite scores from them composers and uh give you a little bit of history background on the kind of uh evolution of the score or the soundtrack that that seems
1: to be one of the uh, uh, things we do here on the cinema discovery project is give you a little background, a little history, a little context of the subjects we're going into, because you kind of, you need, you need a foundation before you start building on something or else. Yeah. And, else and, just I th- th- and I think,
0: yeah. And I think sometimes when you understand where something comes from, it, it sparks the interest a little bit more. I think when you just take something for granted, you take the, take it at whatever the face value is. You can sometimes, like I said, take it for granted, but, uh, when you when you hear about where something came from, you, you hear the story of that thing. It it can make it more it, more interesting for you, and I, I know it does for me a lot of times when I hear the, you know, sometimes when I hear the, like the story of a of a troubled production of a movie,
1: oh, and those, I'm like, oh, those, that sounds kind of – fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm like, ooh, that. You know, what? I, I I do want to watch that movie now, just to, just to see how it turned out. Oh, you know, most so definitely. It, like, um, people yeah, yeah.
1: love. Uh, backstories, or sometimes the backstory is more interesting than the actual movie. I mean, it's it's really now fascinating. I, I will
0: not now now in, in the case of actual movies, I don't always need the backstory. True, um, I don't need the prequel to uh, uh, you know Halloween, which we got with the Rob Zombie, where it was like the whole backstory of yeah, Michael Myers. I, more, I don't I need them from
1: a production yeah. standpoint. Like I'm talking, I know, about, I know. Uh,
0: I, I was just making sure people didn't uh, take us Yeah, the I mean,
1: way, m- one of the most uh, famous <laughs> examples of what we're kind of talking about. Uh, briefly is, you know, Hearts of Darkness, the documentary about making yeah. Apocalypse yeah. Now. Some people think it's, you know, it's better than the actual movie. And I'm like, it's fascinating, and it's amazing, and it's original. And just, I can't believe that that Apocalypse, uh, Apocalypse Now actually got made because of all the problems yeah. and Coppola going, you know, like, slowly losing his mind in the jungle, basically becoming Colonel Kurtz and all the stuff <laughs> behind it. Um, but you know it, it that stuff's fascinating. and when it comes to music and movies in general, musical scores, musical soundtracks, um it goes like like it goes back to the beginning, like kind of where we've always started a lot of these videos. it goes back to you yeah, know man. the silent era of movies. that's kind of where everything starts
0: it's everything starts there man and and you know, the thing about it is is when you talk about when we talk about that era now we say silent films, but back then. They were just films, and what? they just they 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 were just they were going to see the picture. We're going to go see the picture shows today, um, and uh, you know, at first, you know, they were just movies. They were just flickers. They were just flickering pictures. But then they realized that you know because of you know one of the, the distracting things about that time was the projector. The projector oh, yeah. would make these loud sounds, the flickering sounds, and it would be very kind of annoying for for you to hear that and watch the movie. So that's when the idea to put music over it kind of comes into play. And early on, it could have been a few different things. Usually it was a, like a guitar player. They'd get a guitar player to play or a piano player or organist or, you know, usually one instrument. Sometimes there was maybe a, a small little orchestra, um, but it, I think Edison kind of introduced the orchestra element. Right. Um, but um, – a lot of times it was just one guitar player get up there and do his little, you know, and play over the. Yeah. It's
1: very interesting how we take the music for granted now. You know, the syncing of movies and how mm-hmm. big of a role they play now. Where back then they, it was just used to, to not, you know, for lack of a better term, piss off the crowd who was paying the money to go see the movies yeah. because you know the projectors back then were. Uh, large and loud and complicated so you could hear flickering you can hear the motor moving you can hear all that and sometimes they would also use like phonograph players or record players they would play a record uh while the movie was playing and that's how they got the score for the movies um it wasn't really until the sound era um uh, you know 1929 that we actually got we had the technology and the capability to sync up Music and audio in general, you know, dialogue into the yeah. movies where we started getting actual uh, film scores where, yeah, where, uh, you know, studios would be hiring composers to make the film scores.
0: Yeah, because before that, you know, you didn't really particularly got you didn't have composers coming in making music for specific movies. A lot of times you had things written for movies in general and they were used on in everything, um, you know. There was different types of um, orchestrated music back in the in the silent era. Something There was like improvisational, which would be, like I said before, kind of guitar or piano, just kind of playing random stuff. Then there was one thing they called, w- which was cue sheets, which would be kind of this set group of songs or, or sound effects that would be played at certain times that were kind of the, you know, a cheat sheet of sorts. Right. You would just look at it. You would know when to do whatever. And then there was... Um, like you said, kind of the phonograph, the music that was already pre uh, made. And then you would just get sent to you and you would play that. And it would be a music you would hear in a lot of different movies. Um, no, it didn't really matter. And then, like you said, we get to the sound era and you start to get more, um, composers making music for specific movies. Like some of the notable ones at early on were like Metropolis. And, um, right. And I think the jazz singer, you know, obviously being one of the first sound movies anyway. Um, to have the music made specifically for the movie right
1: and so. and people wonder this because this happens a lot now especially you know kind of connecting back to uh, the way we consume movies when it comes to dvds and blu-ray releases of the silent film pictures they often have multiple uh soundtracks to accompany them because a lot of the original music for these for those movies are gone they don't exist nobody saved yeah. them there was no uh, you know, saving on computers back then. Like we said, a lot of them were done live orchestra type, and the film prints didn't have the capabilities of having the music be attached to them. So the music, so the film prints and the music prints would be separate. And, you know, they just get lost over time. Like we said, during our Silent Era um, episode, a lot of the movies were lost as well as the music. Sometimes the music was was lost and the movie stayed, or the movie was gone. The music stayed. It's just like it. No one really preserved any of those things back then. And yeah, and it,
0: you know, we talked about one particular movie that um, got a Criterion re-release, which was uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. Right. Um, it's got multiple uh, music tracks on the on the release, but they're not the original one. Um, there was one that was made in like the what, the early '90s, and then there was one that was made more, more recently. So it's like you, we will never really know what the original music was, right. but you know. And
1: yeah, and it yeah. kind of, and it, it becomes very important because if you watch a lot of those silent movies with the different tracks, you get a different feel for them. You get, you know, yeah. the 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 mood is different, the tone is different because music definitely dictates the tone of movies. And we got a lot of that when it came yeah. to uh, the sound era, specifically uh, the movie of King Kong from 1933, the yeah. Max Steiner film. Uh, um, he, You know, Max Steiner is regarded as the father of film music because it was the first time really in a movie where this idea of a leitmotif was used, leitmotif being like yeah. music specifically used to dictate what is happening in the scene. Um, or, or with a character or with a character like a, you know if, if yeah, someone's you know, like, creeping l- up on somebody you get like the the build up the anticipation or you know foreboding or something like that
0: well yeah i mean like but like if it's for a character it could be like um you know like for instance a popular one would be like indiana jones yeah you know indiana jones shows up it's dun, 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 dun,
1: yeah, every, dun, 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 everybody now uses yeah. leitmotif like literally you'll see tracks on uh, scores or whatever else, say like Indiana Jones theme or Steam, yeah. you know Luke Skywalker's theme or something like that. Yeah. It's like it, it has its origins and, back in the 30s.
0: Yeah, and and we were talking about this before the podcast, like some people kind of have different philosophies on what makes a great film score and some think that ones that kind of fall into place and support everything else and don't really stand out are, are the better film scores, but I, I think we both don't agree with that. Like I think the more, the more recognizable they are. The more that they, that they help elevate the, the the movie and tell the story, are the ones that we remember the most. Um, that have the motifs and 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 things like that. That are the, the most cherished scores of all time. Right.
1: It's a staple of of the scores. John now. Williams yeah. and
0: you know a lot. Of, John Williams is very known for having some of the most catchy, catchiest scores and motif you know light motifs of of any any composer of all time
1: oh for sure Um, and and then after the 30s you get into the 40s and this is when you get a people that are kind of i guess you could say uh very well known or the founding fathers of film composers in my opinion when you get bernard herman alfred newman who is you know the father of thomas newman who's also a a, of Popular composer now, um, Alfred Newman did over two hundred and fifty films. I mean, that's a lot of mm, films. That's a lot. <laughs> that's yeah. a lot of film. And and just quickly moving through the history because we want to get onto like our more personal take on things. In the fifties is when music kind of branches out to where you get uh, it becomes you get a hybrid of symphony and jazz. You know, think yeah. of something like a streetcar named Desire. Something like that is very jazzy, also symphonic as well. Um, you also get something like uh, High Noon, which is a really distinctive score. And High Noon also kind of developed this idea of, not developed it, but it capitalized on the idea of using an original song to to sell the movie. Oh, my darling, you mm-hmm. know, oh, my darling, that song comes from that movie. Um, but, of course, you also had a lot of musicals in the 30s and 40s that we wanted to mention. Yeah. Uh, where the music is synonymous with it. Just think of Wizard of Oz. Uh, somewhere oh, yeah. over the rainbow, the music and, like that, really popular. And, people keep singing it now.
0: And that comes with a discussion, you know, that I think, you know, we'll have so we can kind of get it out there, which is a lot of people always like to argue about the best way to uh, represent the idea of a. a, a, a com- you know a score or a soundtrack you know is does this does a score just mean the orchestrated film does this because you know a lot of times scores like when you buy it at the store they say soundtrack of this movie so but some people like to associate soundtrack with songs like actual songs with words um so like what is your take on this i mean i think we both kind of have realized that it really doesn't matter. It honestly, I mean,
1: it doesn't matter. There, There's probably a definitive distinction between the two, but I'm just looking at some of the scores I have here just for me, and, you know, John Williams scores for, like, The Force Awakens or The Last Jedi says, you know, original motion picture soundtrack, so it's like yeah. it's a film score because it's, you know, it's orchestral, it's John Williams, but it says soundtrack on it, so what does that mean? And I'm like... At the end of the day it seems all kind of semantic to me, where it's just, you know, different words which don't really change the definition too much for me personally. And honestly, you don't really get into um, you know, the traditional, you know, soundtracks. You know, I put I'm using air quotes. You can't see me do that, but I'm using air quotes until <laughs> until really the nineteen sixties and 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 up till now where we're getting um, movies that are using songs from like different bands or different musical artists and stuff like that um which i want to get to but first i want to you know move progressively move linearly so you know what i mean i don't want to skip ahead too far like you don't want to read ahead in class when the teacher doesn't want you to do that uh, of I don't course you, you do, do. i
0: always read the end of the book before <laughs> i go to start what are you talking what's about what's interesting
1: is like the teacher would always scold kids for like oh you read the chapter that when that we're not on yet oh that's too bad for you and it's like you're oh. in, You're kids like. Uh, educational ambition and growth and and their motivation to learn stuff by telling them not to skip forward you know whoa
0: whoa whoa, whoa. you see you seem to be having some personal things yeah, that are coming it, up in this it, podcast all that, all that
1: stuff's coming back up to me wow some flashbacks I should really are coming get in. back on track you gotta reel me in steven steven's mm. my wrangler
0: i'm reeling you back in you can't <laughs> see me doing it but i'm reeling you back yeah, in. yeah he's
1: my wrangler um, I got you. So in the 50s, like I said, we're getting more jazzy, more branching out. Um, we're getting, you know, a popular jazz artist like Miles Davis would be doing film uh, scores for like... the Quincy old, Jones. Quincy Jones. That's when he would show up, I believe in the 60s though, because I'm pretty sure he did uh, uh, In the Heat of the Night. Uh, was yeah, that Quincy yeah. Jones? Yeah, that's a great, yeah. great score. So great. I yeah. might as well skip to the 60s because the 60s is when things kind of take off because you have... Really, you have one of the big heavy hitters, I think, in you know music composing history. In Ennio Morricone comes in, and Mm -hmm. it delivers like some of the most unique and different scores you'll ever see for the Western genre, which was very you know traditional of the time, and he just went completely out of the box because his Italian movies that he was. Um, scoring for were completely out of the box. You know, Italian spaghetti westerns were completely different than American westerns. Yeah. So he had to create a completely different score for that. And his his music is iconic. It's used over and over again. It's used in Paris. It's used in other movies. And it's very, very distinctive. Um, it, and you also had the amazing score by Maurice Jarre for epics like Lawrence of Arabia, which, you know, just a monumental score. Um, and you also had uh, this is when we get into soundtracks that used licensed music was in the 60s the m- movie that comes to mind uh, the movie that i did my research on was mike nichols the graduate which if yeah. you're familiar yeah, with that movie one, yeah. used music um, from simon and garfunkel and the only yeah. song that was an original like made for that movie was mrs robinson because you know the it comes into the plot of the movie, but all the stuff was just like original music for them that was licensed out. And this is when studios started to realize that it may be um, easier and more. And at the time, it was cheaper to license music, not like now where licensing music can can literally cost you millions of dollars, and yeah, you get yeah. into all kind of contractual issues now when it comes to licensed music. Uh, but that's a whole different. Well, there's a there's thing.
0: yeah there's a, there's a. You know, a sense of like an investment that you have to make when you do that because it's like now that music's going to be attached to that thing for its lifespan. So, how much is that worth? Right. Like, you know, so that's that's something you have to weigh when you think about purchasing somebody's music, and back, somebody else's art. And back you know.
1: then, you know, money was different, value was different. And, you know, yeah. it was kind of a win win. I guess you can make that argument. It was a win-win for both. You know, the band or the musical artist was getting was getting paid. Their music was getting used in a movie. The yeah. the um the movie studio that bought the licensing was able to use that music, so therefore it was able to capitalize on the popularity of that musical artist or whatever. So yeah, it's I was gonna like, say. I think I th- both ways.
0: Yeah, I think I think the 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 best situation usually would be that if one of these studios owned the music already you know like because a lot of these studios also of course probably were in the music business also Oh, for sure you know, you know like warner brothers has their own music side and they would maybe take music from some of their artists so that they don't have to pay uh, they won't really have to pay for it it's yeah, theirs it, it's, it would be just,
1: in-house yeah. i think columbia yeah, and then, yeah. had, a, had a recording studio as well
0: Yeah, Uh, there's a bunch of
1: people uh, that branched out from the movie business to music because, as we were learning, or as we probably have known so far, is that their music and movies go hand in hand very much. So specifically, when it came to uh, the 1980s, when you had kind of the, you know, the outburst of MTV and music videos became less like just plain Jane and they were more art forms. Think of like Michael Jackson's Thriller or or beat it or something like that and you had like you know like Martin Scorsese like directed music videos and stuff like that you get a lot of uh, people coming from directing music videos to to then directing movies and that whole
0: and a lot of music and a lot of music documentaries too yes
1: Martin Scorsese really liked to do that he did you know a Rolling Stones documentary he did a documentary of Last Waltz as well yeah
0: um, which is the band, right? Yeah, it's the band one on the band. They, they're literally
1: called yeah. the band. And they were Yeah. <laughs> they were the band when it came to uh, they were I think they were like the backup band for um I can't remember. I don't know. Um, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. That's who okay. it is. I, I was listening to Bob Dylan yesterday and now I couldn't remember.
0: How dare I know how dare
1: I so in the so we're moving on to the seventies because this is when we get kind of a more explosion of technology. This is when we get like d- d- synthesizers. So we are now having yeah. It
0: starts to get a little bit more technical based te- technology based. It gets more digital of, now. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, digital. And you got
1: directors like uh, John Carpenter coming in with a synthesizing score for like Halloween and stuff like that, uh, and you know La- uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. And then of course you get. John Williams who is one of the most famous and one of the best of all time and his star wars score is iconic
0: yeah beyond well, it, 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 first it jaws jaws kind of jaws is well, broke yeah, I know the
1: I loves jaws so he, well i mean, of course and it's I iconic do. too you know yeah, the and yet again well, it was thinking, kind
0: of the it was his first it was his first it was kind of his first one yeah and it was his
1: know? pairing with
0: Spielberg, yeah, Spielberg you know, which first time really defined his premiere yeah.
1: For a lot of it, and um, it's really interesting how sometimes directors do attach themselves to filmmakers, and they're able. Oh to yeah, and really that's that's career.
0: that's definitely a, I'm sure a conversation that we'll continue to talk about when we get to our own personal lists of some of our favorites at the end here oh, for but, sure. Um, and yeah, because there's a lot a lot of great partnerships. Right,
1: and then we have we have people like uh, Jerry Goldsmith who would who would arrive in the 1970s as well uh he I, I was talking with steven earlier uh in the 80s and going into the 90s he direct he did composing for so many movies he was kind oh, yeah. of kind of like the go-to guy um and you also had more you know uh techno not techno but like more lucid music was being used in movies uh, like you have like the band uh Tangerine Dream and Goblin were doing music uh starting in the 70s but then in the 80s is when Things kind of go a little crazy. The 80s is a weird (laughs) decade. I've probably said it before I'll say it again. The movies are weird. The clothes are weird. Everything's weird about that decade. So this is where you get like an amalgamation of all kinds of stuff when it comes to music and movies.
0: You, You could say in a sense, you know, because of the synth being a kind of the synth age. Right in a sense some of that technicalness of the what an orchestrated score would have kind of goes out the window in this era right. where you have a lot more just synthy, ominous sounds or you know just just one note sounds yeah
1: if you think of the scores <laughs> for a blade runner and you also yeah. know that John Carpenter is still doing the thing and the fog and stuff like that.
0: They're very drony. Yeah, you also got yeah, like their drone sounds. You know, Tron is a little,
1: it, literally, a movie about going into a computer. You can't have yeah. an orchestral; it, it just won't work. The I mean, you could, but it doesn't fit tonally. It doesn't as fit well tonally because you've got to get yeah. that tech, that techy vibe with it.
0: So we have a, we have a picture in our minds of what sounds fit what picture we see because of. I mean, it's the influence of how movies and music have been. If they would have always, you know, had orchestrated music with movies that looked like that, then we would think that way. But that's not how our minds have been calibrated. You know, when we think of a movie that's really, you know, high tech-based some or something that's very high energy, like something like The Matrix or something, we we think of a certain type of music or we, you know. Right. Or like you start, you know, so it's, it's part of the conditioning that we've had. But I, mean, I think that music can go wherever it wants to go. I don't think there's any rules. No, I, per I, se. I'm
1: not one for uh, putting rules in movies, you know, rules of what you can and cannot do when it comes to the technical aspects of it. You know, if you yeah. want to. That's to, if there, there's do, no do way it. to
0: progress. There's no way for our our, our our artists to progress if they keep going by the formula, no, no. which is mean, what the that studios. That's what the phase, studios want. Yeah, it goes you know?
1: with any phase of movie making. If it's cinematography, <laughs> if it's the music, if it's the editing, you know, not yeah. non-linear editing. You know, for a long, long time, movies were only you know constructed or put in a certain way. You know, beginning to end, first, second, third act, and then you and then you have movies that you know what. We're gonna have flashbacks. We're gonna have different perspectives. Yeah. We're going to show a movie out of order. You know, it's it's just all about the evolution of filmmaking and and pushing that that ever um, you know ability of an artist and stuff like that. But getting back into the eighties, the eighties is also a time where you would have the combination of both. You know, original music soundtracks or scores, and as well as popular music as well. Yeah. Think of Back to the Future. Think of Ghostbusters. Think of Flashdance. Um,
0: Footloose. Think of uh, Dirty Dancing. Dirty
1: Dancing. <laughs> yeah, you think? I actually, I, I actually saw it for the first time, time recently.
0: The one never to... And Patrick Swayze sung in that. Swayze's and, the yeah. man.
1: Swayze will always. Swayze, be the man.
0: Swayze, one day. <laughs> We're gonna talk about Roadhouse on here. Because Roadhouse is underrated classic. Roadhouse. But let's get back to this. Roadhouse.
1: Um <laughs> and then you still have the classic uh scores, of course. John Williams, who would you know, he would do Superman in the late seventies, then the Indiana Jones that we talked about, E. T., which I know Steven yeah, loves. Yeah. Um, but there's just this of combination got- of so much.
0: Oh, yeah, and, and of course we got our pro- other prominent guys kind of popping up in these times, like Hans Zimmer uh, kind of comes out of the right. 80s. Um, Danny Elfman, Danny Elfman. Is, becomes very prominent in this time. James
1: Horner would start here as well.
0: James Horner. Um,
1: you all, yeah, Like we mentioned, Jerry Goldsmith, who did so many things in the movie. Um, what is interesting is you also had uh, the moment where bands would start being hired to do scores for movies. Um, I don't know yeah. if it was something that happened Earlier on, but I remember the '80s seemed to be that that thing where you would get you would hire Queen to do music for Highlander and for uh, Flash Gordon, and you would get oh so many bands to do to do stuff. Uh, David Bowie would do music for movies. I mean, it's it was just something that was really, really interesting at the time where you're, 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 cross, you're crossing the mediums, you know what I mean? Like kind of like yeah, crossing yeah. the streams uh, in Ghostbusters, yeah, yeah. where you're crossing the music and the movie medium together. And then you have kind of the 90s, which would just kind of further continue on everything. You know what I mean? And, where, and then, Yeah, where, I mean, it would also... It, now it's everything. Where the
0: music... Yeah, where the music industry would start to change yes. in its trends, also the movies would sometimes change with them. But
1: you also, um, like, I think by the time the 90s rolled around, music in movies were, became more important, became more uh, distinctive, mm-hmm. became more um, very much uh, no know, uh, known, like it became popular. Like a lot of the yeah. soundtracks that I have, a lot of movies from the 90s and 2000s, you know, Um, And this was also a time. And
0: a a, a lot of times they wouldn't, you know, like you were saying, like the like Queen would be hired for a Highlander to do that whole movie. But a lot of times in the 90s, you would just get songs that were made either for the movie, like one song was made for the movie by an artist or and it would be multiple artists with their songs on one soundtrack.
1: I believe uh, one of the most famous, at least from when I was growing up, was the Google Dolls with city, oh, of yes. angels, city of angels Iris. that song is still great <laughs> oh man God, you're,
0: you're gonna make me cry i'm gonna start you know, saying thinking about is, just thinking about nicholas cage in that uh, movie being an angel we uh, always think uh, about Nick cage as an angel he is an angel um but, but the other one that really stands out is forrest gump forrest gump one of the great soundtracks you know has music from all eras um so, I mean, sure, once again, getting back to the idea of composing to score versus a soundtrack with a bunch of music, and I think during this time, the 80s and the 90s, the soundtrack with songs was kind of becoming the popular thing. Oh, yeah. And it um, was, with a lot of the music,
1: I mean, there's so many different tangents one could go on. Music, in, in general, was changing all the time, and I'm meaning, and I, I'm only going from, like, even from a rock and roll perspective, just the sound of the tone was changing, and movies sometimes reflected that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's in, what I was in, saying. In like, a lot 80s, of times... A lot of, yeah. you know, remember, in the 80s, we had a lot of hair metal, a lot of metal, you know, so the yeah. movies were really kind of dictating a lot of that music that they were using for it. Uh, you know, you would get, you know, like... A motorhead would, would do, like, uh, like Ace of Spades would be in a movie, and it was just like, that's a yeah. different sound than, like, the Google well, uh, Dolls from the 90s, but you yeah, just yeah. see how it dictates. Uh, they kind of mesh with one another, dictate over time. And a lot of that yeah, had the to music. do with... I don't want to cut you off, but a lot of that had to do with um, rock stars and musical artists were now, you know, concentrating on becoming composers. We already mentioned Danny Elfman, but we also have to mention people like uh, Trent Reznor and... Radioheads, Johnny Greenwood, and just people, you know, making a transition over from one genre to the other.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that, um, you know, like we were saying earlier, the – a lot of times the music and vice versa, you know, the music industry will have a reflection on the trends of society, you know. So, like, for instance, um, somebody like Cameron Crowe who uses a lot of, uh, you know, great music in his movies – he did a movie in the early days um, that was very much inspired by the '90s sound. Um, what am I? What, I'm, what, what's the name of the movie? I didn't think Tell you were me. gonna
1: bring this up, but you always uh, surprise me, Stephen. Um, oh, the, you're welcome. The movie is Singles. It, it, singles, and, yes, it. And yes. Cameron Crowe, um, that movie I believe was based in Seattle. So you, you had the. It was all grunge music.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah, it was the grunge scene. So that grunge scene. Transcended just the music; it went into the fashion, it went into the culture, and so it also affected films. You right. know, we were getting a lot more um, films that were a lot darker, and you know, like something like *The Crow*. *The Crow* has that metal slash the grunge era kind of melded into got, it. Gothic. It, it's got that
1: '90s know. metal. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. When I think '90s metal. It's different than '80s metal. '90s metal is a lot harder, a lot darker. Um, like Pantera I think of like 90s metal yeah. sub band like that um, you know Metallica is more 80s metal but they they of course made the transition over into the 90s um, some of those 80s bands really didn't last past the 80s they were just so stuck in no. their time um, um, for me you know my favorite band of all time is Guns N' Roses and they did a song for Terminator 2 you know <laughs> Uh, it's just like.
0: But it was not in. The, I don't think it was in the oh, movie, though. It's the it was like in
1: the um, movie. Is it in the movie? A scene.
0: Oh, no, it is. It's the scene where they're in the motorcycle. Yeah, the
1: kid, yeah. the kid's like working yeah. on his little like moped motorcycle. He's got the radio yeah, going. I remember that. And, now. and you know. Oh.
0: It's basically not in the movie. Now. Oh, don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself. <laughs> Nobody's really listening to that
1: song. Um, that I mean, I'll say this, though. I mean, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but in Terminator Salvation, which came out 2009, they used the song in the movie, so did they still canon. Wow. there was a part in Terminator Salvation where oh, i can't remember what character but he's trying to lure out like a um like a machine so he like puts puts music playing and it's the Guns N Roses song from Terminator 2 oh it's 2. Pro-
0: it's pro- it's probably the young Kyle Reese it's,
1: yeah probably the young Kyle Reese or yeah the other guy who was in the movie i can't remember he was also in Avatar the guy
0: that's from Avatar yeah yeah, yeah. that we uh, uh i can't think of his name uh, doesn't really matter because we're talking about schools. <laughs> That's true. We're talking really about matter. music and film, and, and
1: and the music has become so popular today um, that it's you know people go out and buy them, people listen to them on YouTube, SoundCloud, Pandora. Yeah, dude, iTunes. I have I have
0: I have a few, I have you know a few different movies on my on, in my in my playlist and and uh, some just kind of best of like John Williams or best of Hans Zimmer. Um and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, definitely a very integral part of, of uh, our film watch. watching. Right. Some people are into it more than yeah, others. Yeah, some people notice but, it more uh, than
1: others. Some people don't. Um, yeah. I, and, and when it comes to just what music does for the movies, for me, the way I always look at music is kind of like the heart of the movie or the centerpiece or the motor, the engine that kind of drives yeah. the movie. Like, you need – that right score that right music to really uh, give your film a sense of life or a sense of soul or else it's kind of just a bunch of limbs flailing around with no no real purpose it, it really it really is very important although you know some people like we said don't notice it or don't realize it's there and sometimes the best scores are the most subtle scores like you don't even notice sure. them. they're just Somet- sometimes
0: sometimes a score sometimes a score can play in helping elevate a certain emotion. Or a certain part, you know, is elevate something. And sometimes it's just there to, you know, create nostalgia oh, or of create, you know, and, and sometimes there is no score needed. Um there's movie the movie that comes to mind is something like No Country for Old Men. Right. Does not have a score at all. No. And it's a fantastic movie. Um and some, so sometimes and sometimes
1: scores can be detrimental.
0: You know, you know, sometimes sometimes the film doesn't need it film the film's trying to set a tone. That where it doesn't – it wants silence. It wants you to be in the moment. It wants you to not be taking – it doesn't want you to be manipulated by music. Right. There's um, is,
1: and by detrimental, I mean like like sometimes movies, um, they're just te- – visually they can tell you what they want you to know without having to kick in the score, which just kind of like – extra frosting on the cake or, you know, sure. extra dessert or something like that or extra cheese or whatever. And and sometimes it's like, okay, that's a little bit too much, a little bit too on the nose. I know I'm supposed to feel sad in this scene because what's happening yeah. on screen so, is very sad. You don't need to kick in the music too. That's just too much.
0: Yeah, sometimes it gets a little bit too much when certain movies, when you don't have a, an experience, feel like an experienced composer or somebody that understands, you know, or, you know that you don't always have to be so on the nose or so literal with the, with what you're trying to say in the scene. Um, you know, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not, it depends, but um, yeah, I mean, there's just so many different um, styles and things that we can't really talk at with uh, any real education, no. you know, when it comes to the music itself, but um, we will in this and kind of, unless you're got anything else to say about the, the kind of the history, I think, you know, we're going to, Move on into our kind of some of our personal favorites. Yeah,
1: that's what I was going to ask. If you want to move into your personal favorites now, because we each of us decided to make a list of like our five favorites or five ones they are not, it's
0: not like a top, like a you know, if and if I'm being honest with myself, myself, if I was to make a, a top five list. Probably some of some of the probably the same like John Williams would probably have almost all five. Yeah, because um, he has some of my favorites it, of all time. Like
1: we say with our favorite movie list, it's not really definitive because it fluctuates and changes. Yeah. Uh, some of these may never change for us. Who knows? Um, sure. And of course, you can. You know, it, it, it all depends on mood. Who you feel like listening to that day. You know, if you're yeah. you know sick of hearing this uh, some score for and, like, for the millionth time, you like want something different. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say this though the diversity within music really makes it that much more interesting because like Steven was saying, there's so many different facets it takes. It can be jazz. It can be rock. It can be pop. It can be orchestral. It can be synthesized. It can be surreal. It can be anything. It's just, it all depends on what you like. Kind of like movies. That's why music and movies really go hand in hand. They're all really subjective.
0: And what's funny about, you know, getting into my list, um, and what I realized as I was writing them down and we were talking about it earlier, most of mine that I'm going to tell you here are going to be from the eighties because there's just something about what came out of the eighties that had just worked when it came to, to scores and soundtracks and, and it just, uh, I couldn't help but put down mostly eighties, uh, examples yeah, and, here. And so. a lot of
1: ours are probably going to be people, you know, and there are of course, uh, people that you may not know or, and- just in film composers in general. And of course, I think both of our lists have all male composers, but there are, of course, female composers as well. Sure, I just of want course, to name definitely. a few of them before we get into yeah, our yeah. our list. Uh, Wendy Melvon, Lisa Coleman, um, Mika Levi, Miriam Cutler, Rachel Portman, among many other women, are also great composers as well. It's not a strictly male, uh, you know art form, but it, unfortunately, like movies in general, the most prominent and the most ones who have been given the most opportunities are, of course, the male director, male composers.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say. For me, I'm not very familiar with a lot of female um, composers, right. so that's that's something that needs to be rectified. rectified definitely because rectified. Because it's, it's 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 definitely you know, and maybe we'll do an episode on it one day. Even though we're just two white guys, um, that you know, an episode about female females in film because there's just not enough of like examples in, in a lot of different facets right. uh, of filmmaking that there's not enough females. I think there's involved. a
1: great um, kind of renaissance happening right now with the history of women in film and how vital the role that they've played in all facets of whether it be acting, directing, yeah. producing, uh, editing. The fi- uh, Women were Basically, the editors of, of movies for a long, long time are uh, the best editors in movies for a long, long time. And, of course, we have female cinematographers and composers and yeah, set designers. They, they, so mean, the, thing, the thing is that it, forever.
0: they're there, but, but there's not enough of them. and They're also and not it,
1: given any time to shine or any real spotlight yeah. up until now where we're starting to learn about a lot of the women and how important they were throughout the history of movies.
0: Well, I'm saying, I I mean, they're out there and there's, there are a lot of them out there, but like you said, there, there, there's not a lot of them that are getting the great opportunities is what I'm saying that they, there, there's a lot of them, but they're not given the big movies or they're not given the Hollywood stuff. They're not given, they're all kind of, a lot of them are in TV. A lot of them are in, you know, um, so I mean, it's get
1: into TV at all. Um, we just kind of stick to TV, 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 different podcast episode. For TV. Yeah. Because things are different T- when it comes to TV.
0: We're the cinema discovery project. That is so. true, Steven. That is true. <laughs> We're not the televind- television discovery that project. That is very true. But um. let's just say uh, <laughs>
1: movies had theme songs as well as TV shows had theme of songs course. as well. So
0: but, let's uh, get yeah. to our list. Yeah, so, Steven, you want to yeah, start? Yeah. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, we kind of talked about this one a little bit um, somewhat, and that's um, Back to the Future. Um, Alan Sylvester. Yeah, that's a, another um,
1: 80s it, composer. Oh yeah, he's
0: he's this, you know. Not of course not only the the mu- the, the main themes, orchestrated themes, um, but the um, just the soundtrack, the music. You got a lot of uh, was Huey Lewis, Huey Lewis um, in the news. Yeah, a, a lot of his songs, the power of love, back da, in time. Da, 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 da. Yeah, back in time. Um, just a very you know of the time soundtrack and. Um, it just really has this sense of adventure that, that really just it makes it one of the. It's part of what makes that trilogy one of the greatest trilogies of all time, you know. And Alan Silvestri, of course, has went on to do a lot of other big movies, and he just is really good at um, creating that sense of adventure. I think he just really knows how to, um, just make you feel like you're you're in danger. You're you're the sense of excitement, and he just he just there, his I wouldn't say his a lot of his scores are, they're always very big. Right. There's you know like they're not usually very. I mean, sure, there's probably moments that get very subtle, but a lot of times his best portions of his scores are when it gets really big. Um, when I think of and him, the, yeah.
1: When I think of him, I think of uh, Euphoria or Euphoric.
0: Yeah, Euphoria is a good I'm, way to describe that.
1: That's yeah. the future theme. When I was a kid, man, uh, that thing was just synonymous with happiness for me. Uh, because it's so iconic and just so amazing. It was one of the first scores I ever remember, uh, you know, being distinctive enough for my little mind to attach to. For What's crazy, for years and years and years and years, up until in my teenage years, I thought that was John Williams. I, sw- I thought it was John Williams. You
0: know, I, I think what what happens is is a lot of times when we see, like, if we have, like, the movie and it says Spielberg Presents, so then our mind goes to John Williams. And, you know, Spielberg was just a producer. right? And we forget that, you know— uh, Zemeckis um Roger Zemeckis is the director of the yes. film. So with Zemeckis I think a lot of times and I I, I wonder if did did Alan Silvestri do any other films with Zemeckis other than just this trilogy or That is a great or, question. I could tell I, I want to you... say I want to say he did maybe like some of his films in the in the early 2000s like um like Beowulf or something He did, some, like he did some the Polar them, Express. He did the Polar Express. He did Forrest yeah. Gump. Forrest Gump. Okay, yeah. That was so. Like, yeah, he did work with him a lot.
1: Um, he also did Predator, so, if anybody cares. <laughs> ooh, that's a, yeah, that's a good one. He also did a lot um, so of yeah. uh, the MCU stuff. He did the you know for the original Avengers. He did Avengers. Yeah, that,
0: I was gonna say that's one of the ones that really gets me too. Is is that one? Um, he, yeah. So you know, like we were talking about earlier, some great partnerships with composers and filmmakers, and in this case. Him and Robert Zemeckis uh, had a had a pretty
1: stable relationship. relationship. Um, so um, let me go with let yeah, me Go with my number. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, which is an interesting kind of combo: filmmaker, director, producer, writer, and musician combination, which you don't see a lot of, but it does maybe occur. <laughs> and that's John Carpenter, and that gets yes, into that whole yes. synthesizing game of the '70s that we talked about. That you know, make its way all the way up till now, John Carpenter just did a score for the new Halloween film. And it's, it's an amazing score. Like it's maybe my mm-hmm. favorite, you know, soundtrack slash. I bought it theme. right
0: away. I bought it right away myself. I bought it
1: right away. You know, what's interesting is I went into the store to buy it and they were playing it over the speaker in the store. And I'm like, yeah. oh, it's destiny, isn't it? Um, But, but the <laughs> one I'll choose for him Out of just the abundance of ones that he did is is the one for the original Halloween, which is absolutely Mm. iconic and fantastic. That Halloween theme music is, you know, unbeatable when it comes to what it what it feels like. You know, it's so distinct and so interesting. And John Carpenter did kind of the music for all of his films as well. So he was able to really dictate tone fully throughout his movies where he was able yeah. to give it the musical tone as well as the tone he wanted for uh the soundtrack as well so kind of like a double whammy and he also yeah. did you know for the thing for Christine and Escape from New York is another great one but for me Halloween is is my favorite of his um yeah I love John Carpenter
0: Yeah yeah I think we, John Carpenter's a great example of somebody like it's something Tarantino has said before too is that he the reason why he doesn't do a lot of scores, he does a lot, a lot more songs in his movies, because he does not want to um, hand over the heart of his movie to somebody else, um, unless I guess unless he really trusts him. Which in, in the case of you know more who came in and did um, Hateful Eight, of course he trusted him to get his the music right. Um, so like for somebody like John Carpenter it's the same thing where he a lot of times would just do the music for his own films because he feels it's such a integral part of the movie that he doesn't want to trust it to anybody else. Right. So. But um going into my next one, um I'm going to do a movie from uh a great composer named James Horner. We we talked about him a little bit and that's Field of Dreams, which I think is maybe one that's a little bit interesting. Maybe some people think maybe I'll t- talk about Braveheart or you know Apollo 13 or Titanic, a lot of great ones. He did. He worked with uh, James Cameron a lot. Um, but I, there's something about Field of Dreams, man. I, I, first of all, of course, I love that film. Um, um, I'm a baseball fan. I, I, it's my probably my favorite baseball film, even though it's not literally about like a sports team in per se. But it's more about a father and son story. It's 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 got this dreamlike element to it, and I think that that the James Horner score does a good job of uh making you feel that feel that sense of awe. um you know he does a lot of these like piano and it has this very kind of like angelic feel to it because you know in the movie spoilers um you know he builds this base you know he live he works in this farm he hears these voices and basically it's kind of the kind of the 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 afterlife kind of saying, hey, we want you to build this, you know, it's his father, apparently, by the end of the movie, but the dead wanting him to build this baseball field, and so, like, it almost has this thing of, like, he's close to heaven kind of thing, and that's what that, the score brings out is this sense of, like, heaven's nearby, and it's, like, you know, even in the movie, they, you know, the character that, um, Shoeless Joe Jackson says, hey, is this heaven? And he's like, no, it's Iowa, you know, so like it kind of brings that out in the score, this this kind of like dreamlike, this angelicness to it. And it's it's beautiful. I think it's very subtle and it's it's just it bring it helps bring out the feels in the right moments. And uh, it's one of my personal favorites.
1: Yeah, when I think of James Horner, I do think of that dreamlike almost feeling of wonder. You know, he would of yeah. course do Titanic and Avatar. He and James Cameron had a great relationship.
0: I think he's a very he's a very understated composer, but but he, like like he he does so many great ones. But he, he's not so showy. He's not right. as showy. Um, yeah.
1: he, his his scores feel very majestic as well.
0: Yeah, majestic.
1: Yeah. Um, unfortunately, he he passed away three years ago. Uh, way too soon. You know, it was I yeah. believe it was a plane accident. He died in. Um. And he, you know, was kind of still working, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. I oh, think yeah, he, he
0: was working. On, he, he, I think the last – see, the last score he did was in 2016, The Magnificent Seven okay. for Antoine Fuqua. Yeah. For Antoine
1: Fuqua. Um, yeah. So my next one is a classic, an all-time classic, a favorite of mine, maybe a favorite of many people, and that's Bernard Herrmann. I think he's one of the most influential – Who is that guy? Oh, okay, Stephen. Uh, I'm just kidding. And, uh, I know who that guy is. Um, he did the scores for many, many films, but most uh, famously, he was paired with Alfred Hitchcock. He did uh scores for Alfred Hitchcock, starting with the uh, the Trouble with Harry, going all the way, I believe, up to Marnie in the early '60s. But most prominently, he did Vertigo, Psycho, North by Northwest. But this film score that I want to highlight and just. You know, recommend to people in general is one of his last, and actually, maybe the last one he did while he was alive. Uh, And that is Taxi Driver, the Martin Scorsese film from 1976. Um, He passed away like right after he did it. Um, What is very interesting about that is Scorsese called him up or called up representatives whatever and when he heard the name of the movie he was like he was completely didn't want to do it because he was like i don't do car movies or something like that
0: i don't do car i don't do car (laughs) movies and then like
1: scorsese's like no no you like read the script and he gave uh, scorsese you know gave him the script and he read it and he and he did it and the score is amazing in that movie just you know really um showing what New York felt like in that time in the 70s, what Travis Bickle was like, you know, you know, traveling through the night out of like the mist and the fog of the street lamps and all that kind of stuff. The opening of uh, Titanic, the opening of uh, Taxi Driver is just iconic of driving through with the headlight. Just amazing, amazing score. Bernard Herrmann worked from, like I said, the 40s all the way up through 1975 or so when he passed away. One of his first score, I believe his first score in general, was Citizen Kane, wow. which is kind of amazing if you think about it. He did scores for uh he has an uncredited for the Magnificent Ambersons, which was Orson Welles' follow-up. He had the Ghost Mrs. Moore. He did, like I said, all the Hitchcock stuff. Just an amazing, amazing Yeah, I was going to say, score.
0: probably when I was talking about it before, uh, that Vertigo is one of my favorites that I've listened to. Um, It's just such a... Like, the movie itself, of course, is a dark movie, but listening to just the score by itself is so scary. Like, it's such a horrifying score. There's a
1: twistedness to it, you know what I mean? Because it's a twisted movie. Um, Everybody thinks... It thinks it's it, it, it's psychological. It's one of his most psychological movies. But the sad part about it is that it was critically panned and people hated that movie when it came out. And now it's yeah. not only one of the most iconic scores, but one of the most highly regarded movies of all time. Yeah, it's
0: weird how that how that is. And and one thing I saw about Bernard herman something he'd said about you know scores, is that um he said that he thinks that the score should should stand alone. It should be something that you can listen to by itself and it could have it could live on its own and not just with the movie. Yeah, his scores
1: are such a so, vibrancy to them. Such a yeah. a life uh, and mind of their own that they like they, they would stand on their own no problem. Um, yeah. But Stephen your next one? My next one I want to mention a
0: composer that I'm I'm not always a fan of his collaborations with a certain filmmaker. I'm not a fan of this filmmaker that much but <laughs> this guy's music is always interesting. Um, and that is Danny Elfman. Um, and the movie I want to talk about is Beetlejuice because this was kind of one of his first kind of big movies that he, he got into. And it, I think it's his first collaboration with Tim Burton second uh, or second. What's the first one?
1: Pee-wee's big adventure.
0: Oh yeah. I forgot about that. one. Everyone forgets. So about movie. <laughs> yeah, you know, cause I don't really watch it. Um, <laughs> I've seen it maybe once. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, if you listen to a, uh, a Danny Elfman score, it's usually pretty bouncy. Um, it's got, like, a lot of different kind of, like... Uh, Usually, a lot of different time measures going. It's you know, it's and then it's got you know, it's got it's coming from all different places. Like, but you know, the Beetlejuice score, yeah, I love it. You know, I'm I'm probably gonna actually put some of the actual music in this episode. So I don't know why I'm doing yeah, that. Yeah, I know it, but, it still um,
1: sounds great to me.
0: Oh, I know, I know, I, I could I, if you know, if I had the time, I would record every sample and just, just do all the different instruments and then put it together. For this podcast, just with my voice, um, maybe I'll do that one day. But um, yeah, I, you know, even though I'm not a huge fan of Tim Burton, especially lately, early Tim Burton, I, I like a lot of his stuff and the music uh, that Tim Burton would do would always be very, um, definitely very, he, very standoutish. I mean, it. There was nobody that makes a score quite like Tim Burton. Um, uh, you know, there's also, of course, stuff like Batman. He did, he kind of comes up with the great kind of the batman score that that i think is still probably the most popular batman score i would say today mm. um well i mean you disagree with I, you know
1: it is very iconic um
0: i, I would say
1: is that's another one of those movies that mixed uh score with you know musical prince soundtrack yeah. from prince and you can buy them yeah. both separately uh the prince music is crazy for that movie
0: yeah yeah. But um yeah, I, I you know, Danny Elfman's definitely a um a unique composer. I think he he, he stands alone. Um nobody like I said nobody's quite like no, him. He, so he, unique. That, that's you're yeah, definitely
1: unique. Um but yeah, my my next one is someone you all know and love. We've talked about him already on this episode, and that's John Williams. I I don't think he needs much of an introduction or much of no. a uh, uh, explanation uh the not really the, the most iconic for me is of course star wars star wars is probably the you know the first time i ever heard him his music when i was a kid around oh boy probably like eight ten years old and somewhere around there and you know you hear that you hear that star wars theme if you grew up with it it still gives you chills it's still iconic when Um, The Force Awakens came out a few years ago, and you get the opening crawl, and it just hits, and if it's something that is really close to you, you can't help but uh, get emotional over it. And of course, he's done other scores, um, like we mentioned, Indiana Jones, E.T., uh, just yeah. so many amazing, amazing scores throughout his life, and he's still making scores. He's still doing it. He's up there in he's age. He's Still doing he, Star Wars. He's still doing Star Wars, <laughs> and they won't let him. They won't let him stop. They won't let him rest. And I think I they think he likes yeah. that. But I mean, he did, of course, all the Star Wars scores for the the prequel films
0: episodic films the
1: episodic films uh the prequel films i mentioned because everybody kind of you know craps all over them but the one thing you cannot say is that the musical scores in those movies aren't fantastic because they are amazing you know what i mean despite what you may think of the characters or the stories or anything like that those scores are just amazing of course, he did the Superman score. Um, he, he is, is Jurassic t- Park. Jurassic, oh, Jurassic Park! He did, of course. You know, say what you want. Almost every, every, almost every Spielberg movie. I, I mean, I'm just looking um, at it. You're talking, and he, also other things that you didn't expect, like The Witches of Eastwick. He did Home Alone. He did. Um, Harry Potter Harry Potter he did he did he uh, he he's the one who created that iconic Harry Potter theme that they just kept using yep. over and over again they kept changing directors throughout that franchise but mm-hmm. his is the one that i think kept sticking throughout his is the most memorable of all of those he only did he did from the sorcerer's stone and he did chamber of secrets and prisoner of azkaban and then after that he didn't yeah, do any yeah i anymore. think after that
0: he was done yeah but he
1: did you know Memoirs of a Geisha, Munich, War of the Worlds, uh, Minority Report. These are all his, his Spielberg uh, uh, stuff. You
0: know, something uh, – like I said, also, uh, Schindler's List. Schindler's List, other, Amistad.
1: Yeah. I mean he did Step Mom. I mean who – you know, The Patriot, the <laughs> Roland Emmerich film. Uh, he did the remake of Sabrina from the ni- uh, from the 90s he did the Nixon movie uh, i it, it just his his range just, just knows goes buttons, on he, you know what he, i mean yeah and uh, he's yeah he's on my list he's probably on everybody's list i know uh now he's not on my he's list he's not on steven's list oh what a shame what i'm just shame. kidding <laughs> uh, so steven what's your next one
0: yeah, I might as well just go ahead and talk about it real quick. Uh, E.T. is is on my list. But you it's, said he um, wasn't
1: on your list, you liar. I was lying. I lie sometimes.
0: Um, yeah, E.T., I, you know, people, like, when we talk about, like, everybody, like, I get in debates with people, like, what's the best John Williams score? And, you know, a lot of people say, you know, Jurassic Park, E.T., or, uh, you know, a lot of different ones. E.T. is always the, the one. Like, uh, Jurassic Park, Star Wars. Uh, you know, Jaws is another big one. E.T. is always my favorite. Um, it's, it's, to me, it, it is one of the best examples of how he uses a lot of motifs. Right. Uh, like motifs in, 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 the film where he's got, you know, when the guy with the, the, the government guy with the keys comes by, there's a specific theme for him, um, you know when they go up in the air, when they fly up in the air, when ET and, and something magical is happening, it has a certain certain theme to it. I mean, he's got like three or four different like main parts of the score in it, weaved in that come back and forth throughout the movie, and it's just so whimsical and so um, dramatic and and tender and at times and just. And it's the movie, of course. When you when you think about the music, of course, you're thinking about the movie, and the movie itself is just so, uh, such a powerful movie right. for me. So you know, he um, has
1: such subtle beauty throughout his scores, and he also has bombasticity as well. So he can go, you know, he can lull you into a dream, but he can also rock you awake. It's 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 yeah. amazing what he can do. I,
0: I think it's 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 definitely the you could you. Would, You would probably have to say the greatest partnership between a filmmaker and a a composer of all time um, because they know each other so well and what they want to get out of the movie. Um, And even when Spielberg probably doesn't know what he wants, John Williams gives it to him and it's the right way. You know, like he just they know they know each other so well that they know what to do, how to make the compliment each other and make the movie the best it can be. So,
1: yeah. Okay. Uh, my next one is could have been my number one. Was probably going to be my number one, but then I but then I kind of switched my number one and number two. Yet again, we're just giving arbitrary numbers here because
0: they're just, just giving you some some
1: yeah. arbitrary. But you know whatever. Yeah. Uh, it, it is Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, you're probably very well aware of because he he's doing movie scores now. He's done very iconic movie scores in the last several years. He did uh the scores for the nolan batman films he's done a lot of the nolan scores in general uh for 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 christopher nolan i call him nolan for short because we're best friends you know yeah your best friends
0: (laughs) i mean he he's done basically all of his movies since batman begins yeah since batman begins
1: Um, although batman begins and is with james newton howard james newton howard and i think also the dark knight was as well uh he's collaborated like 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 we just mentioned, yeah. you know, he's done Inception. He's done uh, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, he's done Kung Fu Panda. I mean, I don't it, think he did just... the
0: Prestige. That's one he didn't do for Nolan. I don't think which one? But, uh, the Prestige. I don't think he did the Prestige. He, no. Yeah, I don't think he did the Prestige.
1: No, yeah. he did not because he was doing the Sherlock Holmes he, stuff. He, he also the did time.
0: Uh, a League of Their Own. Hey, <laughs>
1: hey, you gotta get that money. But he also, of course, yeah. did it. Um, he did. The Last Samurai, underrated film. I like that one, um, yeah. Matchstick Men, another underrated film. Um, he also did The Ring. You know what I mean? Um, but the one that I love the most and the one that I keep going back to, although I love so many of his other scores, is Interstellar, which he did from 2014. I don't know what is it, what it is about that film or about that score that the meshing of the two is an extremely emotional experience for me it's dreamlike it's euphoria it's transported it takes me to a place mentally that i just don't go with when it comes to a lot of other scores and and it's one of his most beautiful scores because hans zimmer is one of those uh composers who can be very fierce very bombastic if you you know his inception score is famous for that you know the the the, the loud banging and the and things like that if you listen to like um the score he did for, like, Man of Steel, very, very loud, very forceful, as well as he did with Batman v Superman with uh, uh, Junkie XL. Um, Just, an, um, just you know, an amazing range in, in a lot of these composers, and Hans Zimmer is one of them. And the, the uh, docking sequence in the movie Interstellar, the music that goes along with it, you know, it's called No Time for Caution, is the track. It's just an amazing, amazing track. He used... Uh, like a uh, pipe organ piano playing music in that. And he, they went to like some special church and somewhere to get that specific pipe organ sound and stuff like that. And there and was a guy there that, that played it and they used, you know, him playing it. And it's just amazing. It's, 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 it's almost indescribable for me that what that movie does and what that score does for me. So that's why I chose Hans Zimmer.
0: Steven. Yes. Yes. That's a good one. I like that one. Um, well, my last one's going to be one that um, has always kind of been kind of a, a favorite of mine, and that's um, from a, Devi- a David Fincher film, uh, The Social Network, and that's Trent Reznor, which we talked about him a little bit of as being you know, one of these um, musicians you know, from a band, in this case Nine Inch Nails. Um, he, he comes in to do the score for, for, for David Fincher's uh, Social Network. He also, I think, did... Uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Yes. Um I, did he do Gone Girl also? Um I'm not sure that if he did that one or not, but they definitely have kind of become a partnership. Um and he's done some other stuff in the past, uh, on and off. Um, but I think more recently he's he's kind of become more um enthralled in, in doing uh you know, composing and for films and stuff. Um He
1: did do um the music for Gone Girl. Okay, it, cool. it's him and um, Atticus Ross. Okay, uh, yeah. they also combined to do um, Social Network, which is a great, great score yeah. as well.
0: Yeah. So, so with Trent Reznor, he's kind of also a very unique um, composer because he kind of primarily uh, is his he is the orchestra because he's he's making all his music. Electronically, yes. Um, you know he has all this, you know, all this gear, you you know, keyboards and things, and he's doing samples and he's making these sounds. Um, you know, he's creating all these sounds, and um, so with something like Social Network, a movie about you know the kind of the creation of the the of Facebook, he he goes with this very ominous score that kind of reflects the the grittier underside of the story of this creation of something that we all use every day (laughs) for the most part, you know, like, um, you know, at the time, of course, before we knew we saw the movie, we didn't realize how kind of like dark the story was, but you know, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I always find it to be a very haunting score, um, to listen to. Um, it has this kind of like slow piano, over you know kind of over a ominous kind of synthy um sound that kind of sways back and forth um and, and it's it's very subtle but it's also very it, it's just very like i said haunting and uh, it very much um kind of it, it tells that it really moves the story uh in a lot of in in the in the in the way that the story is told it, you know it's kind of non-linear it goes all over the place but it it definitely, when it gets to the dark moments, it really, you know, the, comes out in the moments. And uh, I it's 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 very it's a very simple score, but I very I very much love it. And I think it did win best score of the year. It, came it did, out.
1: and a lot of the yeah. people we've talked about have won Oscars for their scores. Uh, and
0: John Williams being probably I, has has won a lot. I want to say I, yes. Sure.
1: I know Hans Zimmer has won. I want to say it's for Inception. I don't know. I'm just throwing. that I think out it there. is Inception. Um, yeah. and And what just piggybacking off of what Steven was saying, yeah, Trent Reznor, if you ever listen to Nine Inch Nails, they have a very unique industrial sound. They were kind of from that that 90s, late late 80s, early 90s metal era. That's very, very interesting, very dark, very, you know, progressive type. You know, just angry metal. You know what I mean? That's what I feel when I think of Nine Inch Nails.
0: Yeah, like when I'm when I'm watching like uh, a lot of it, it makes it makes me think of how great of a a pairing Fincher and him are. Because like visually, when I see like a lot of Fincher stuff, it makes me think of his music. Like 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 the opening for like Seven, where it's got all that film reel and like cr- crazy weird imagery, it makes me think of Trent Reznor's Nine Inch Nails, like the type of that type of music.
1: The irony of what you just said blows my mind because do you know who did the score for Seven? Who? I believe, and I'm going to look this up right away just so I'm not lying to myself or lying to our listeners because, (laughs) you know, sometimes uh, things like that happen. um, As I believe that the person who did it was the next person I'm going to talk about. That's why it's so unique and so interesting. And we did not plan this. And we did this. not plan it. Sometimes things just happen organically and things are just completely random in life and in on this podcast. But the person who did it was Howard Shore, who is ah. the the person I want to talk about right now because Howard yes. Shore did the music for my favorite films of all time in, in the Lord of the Rings films. He did uh, Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King, and the reason why why it's so interesting that Stephen brought up Seven is because, like he was just talking about, Seven is a dark, dark movie, and the music yeah. in that has to dictate that tone, and you get somebody who was able to do that music for Seven, but then he also went on to do, like, the fantastical music in Lord of the Rings... And you're like, how, did, how is that the same person? You have to ask yourself, yeah, really. how is that even possible? But he did do it. And he is, yet again, one of those many faceted um, music composers. And the first time I heard the score for Lord of the Rings, was, of course, when I saw the trailer. And you get that large, bombastic main theme of the Fellowship theme, where all of them are climbing over the misty mountains or they're climbing through the mountains and it's just unbelievably iconic and it it brings out a lot of nostalgia for me and a lot of emotion for me and it's just every time i hear it it's distinctive and i know it i know it the way i know my name and i know it the way i know (laughs) like like certain like integral things that are just embedded in you you know how you say like people say like you never learn how you never forget how to ride a bike or something like that or like yeah, I, yeah. I know like i know the back of my hand or stuff like that that's how well i know the lord yeah of the i Ring's can score. i can play
0: you a piece of music and you probably oh yeah that was that scene that's from that one scene. yeah in and it's like you, like you know you, it yeah. like
1: you know the theme from kaza doom or you know the music that's playing at the battle of Helm's deep or the battle at the end of uh, return of the King or Pelennor fields or,
0: yeah. Like I know, I know the music that plays at the end of ET when he says, I'll be right here, you know, like, like that moment is the music and everything that all the music in that moment is something I could point out. Or
1: even like in the Alan Silvestri, you know, going back to your beginning kind of come full circle, um, the back to the future theme where where he, where he's in the car and he's trying to get it to go and it doesn't work. And then, and you know, and he finally you know gets the gets the yeah. Delorean on, and then the music kicks in, and it's like I know I can associate that scene with that music. It's the same thing with Howard mm-hmm. Shore and Lord of the Rings. And I'm pretty sure he also came back to do um, the Hobbit as well, because I'm pretty sure he he I would He and so. Peter Jackson have a good relationship. Um, yeah, he did Hobbit. Unexpected Journey, Desolation of Smog, and Battle of Five Armies. Those scores are very underrated. I know there's a lot of question about, you know, people liking or not liking those movies, but those scores are still absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And he's done scores for other movies as well. Uh, he did the score for Eastern Promises. Uh, he did a score for Gang- Gangs of New York, the says Scorsese movie. He did a score for another adventure movie, Panic Room. It. He did a score for Existence and stuff like that.
0: Um, now he works with, he works with he, an eclectic he you know, with, amount of um, directors, yeah.
1: David, uh, a lot of dark, like he did the movie Crash, from the one from 96, not the You're one, talking about the Cronenberg Yeah, one. the one that fetishizes, uh, you know, sexually fetishizes car crashes. <laughs> car crashes, <laughs> yeah. You know, he also did the Tim Burton movie, Ed Wood. You know, that wasn't a Danny Elfman yeah, that, movie.
0: He, he's very he's very, he's got a very broad Broad, spe- broad yeah.
1: spectrum, broad range. And he started in, in the 1980s as well, which is kind of where a lot of our... Uh, Director yeah, started. And they you know, started the 80, a lot
0: of people think the 80s eighties music in general was just the best time for music and I, and I have to agree with composers. A lot of great composers came out of that and time. What, I, so. what
1: I've learned about just doing the research we did for this episode is that composers have a very long career in movies. Like... A lot of the composers that we've talked about and a lot of the other ones that we didn't get a chance to talk about have decades and decades worth of work, something that's not necessarily the case for a lot of other components in movie making. You know, directors and producers and editors and actors come and go, but composers have, like, you know, 25, 30-year careers, which is very, very consistent and very interesting because it keeps showing that a lot of them get a lot of work. And they get work consistently, like multiple movies a year, and you know, you know, and stuff like that. And it's really, yeah, it really, just, it really
0: depends on how a filmmaker works when it comes to the music. Some guys like to finish the whole movie and then meet up with the composer and and do it. Sometimes they do it simultaneously. They'll give them a part of the movie here, score this part of the movie. They're still filming the movie. They give them a little bit more. Yeah, and sometimes likes, they you
1: know, they're doing multiple movies at the same time. Yeah and it sometimes all depends sometimes contrast and then and some guys
0: sometimes a guy likes to focus on one movie at a time right. you know
1: you know what i mean and then some so. guys get some guys get the job like a month before a movie comes out and have to uh you know do a whole score for a movie in a month
0: <laughs> yeah we we were talking about my Mike, Mike, michael, giacchino, yeah, michael um, giacchino doing that for rogue, had, had rogue had one had to do that for rogue yeah.
1: one uh, Danny elfman i believe had to do that for the justice league Justice yeah, League Junkie yeah. XL had a whole score probably in place that we're never going to get to hear, unfortunately, because yeah. he's an amazing composer. If you ever just watched the movie Mad Max Fury Road, he did the music for that, and that music's amazing in that movie.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, we we hope you enjoyed uh, our, our kind of discussion about music and film and scores and soundtracks and, and – um, you know, please let us know in the comments who are some of your favorite com- composers, um, some of your favorite movie scores, and and uh, you know, you know, if you guys start leaving comments, maybe we'll read some on some of the episodes. You know, um, but um, I think this is going to be it for this episode of the Cinema Discovery Project. Um, where can you be found, uh, Mr. Cabral? You
1: can find me on Twitter at cabzilla 6 as well as my YouTube channel, Cabzilla Productions.
0: And you can find me on Facebook, Stephen Billings. Um, You can find uh, the Facebook for this podcast on there, Cinema Discovery Project. Also, Instagram, um, YouTube, Cinema Discovery Project. And um, you can find uh, the audio also on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, Podbean. And that's going to be it. Thank you guys for listening. Um, We will be back again next week. And, hey, keep on watching them movies. I know I will.